Let's pray together. Oh, holy God, we come before you thanking you so much for today. We thank you, Lord, that ultimately our independence is found in Christ alone. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have entered into our world and our time and space through your son, Jesus, having him live a life that we could never live, fulfilling the laws and the prophecies of the old covenant, dying a death that we all deserve on the cross, becoming a substitute for our sin, being dead and buried, and by your power, raising him from the dead, defeating sin, death, and Satan, so that through him and by him and because of him, by hoping in him, we might receive forgiveness and adoption as sons and daughters. And so, Lord, we pray as we continue our time of worship that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, Holy Spirit, that you would bring conviction to us, and that you would help us to enjoy you more. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. What's funny, uh, for those of you that weren't here for the introduction uh, or welcome by Gatlin, um, he, he said, it was awesome, he said, hey, we're a little shallow this morning, uh, meaning a little bit light in numbers, because it's usually like the first 15 minutes of our worships, uh, uh, the worship service, it's, uh, we're preparing our resumes and wondering if we need to fold this thing up. Um, and then it fills out, and y'all show up, and it's all, all good and everything else. And so Gatlin said, you're shallow, and I screamed out, no, not shallow. We're not shallow. We're a little light today. So, um, but it's Fourth, Fourth of July weekend, and actually, there's quite a few of you guys here. And either way, I was teasing my friend uh, over here, and I told John Wagner, I was like, I'm just going to preach a sermon I preached before, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to preach uh, where we left off in the Gospel of Mark. And so, so glad you're here this morning. My name is Casey. If you're visiting with us, take one of our connection cards Fill it out and tear it um, and place it in the basket for our offering, um, and we would love to follow up with you. Um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles laying about, and we would welcome you to take it as a gift from us. And so I pray uh, that, that the Lord would continue to engage us and meet with us as we continue this time of worship. So if you have your Bible, open with you, open with me to Mark chapter 11. Once again, we enter into another pivotal point in the gospel of Mark where Jesus is now preparing his entrance into Jerusalem for his ministry in Jerusalem. The first seven chapters of the Gospel of Mark, or into chapter 8, we see Jesus doing outward ministry, showing, declaring to the world that he is um, sent by God, has the authority of God with the power of God. And then we get in Mark chapter 8, and we see that Jesus begins to bring definition to his disciples of what it means that he is the Messiah. And in Mark chapter 8, we see his disciple Peter um, declare that he is the Christ when Jesus asked them, who are people saying that I am, and some say, um, he, he said that some say you're John the Baptist, others say that you're Elijah, and others say you're a prophet, and so the people were seeing and acknowledging that Jesus uh, was sent by God and had some power of God, but they did not yet understand or believe that Jesus was indeed God. We get further in that conversation right after Peter declares that Jesus is the Christ, and we see uh, in verse 27 of chapter 8, and I'll just read it to you, you can listen, you can turn there if you'd like. But in chapter 7 of uh, uh, verse 27 in chapter 8, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, 
For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And so in this part of Mark chapter 8, we see Jesus making this declaration and invitation. He is indeed the Messiah, but what they believe or thought the Messiah was, was much different than they were hoping for. And his disciples, Peter, who just said, you're the Christ, actually corrected Jesus when Jesus brought explanation for what it meant to be the Messiah. And so even his own disciples, who he was walking with and living life, had seen his power, had heard his teaching. He even corrected their misbelief or wrong belief by saying, hey, look, here's what's really going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed by our own people. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again three days later. And Peter, the one who just declared him Messiah, is the one that pulled him aside to correct it. And Jesus made this warning. And this warning is what I want us to carry with us as we go into Mark chapter 11, as we enter into Jerusalem with Jesus. He says, get behind me, Satan, you tempter. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so his big ultimate correction was that his focus, his mind, his heart's desires weren't lining up with what what God wants. It was lining up with what they wanted. And that was in a very small group of disciples, hoping as they were walking with Jesus to be at his right side, to become one of the great ones. And we see them arguing about that later in the Gospel of Mark. And so we pick up in Mark chapter 11. And a lot of times this passage is taught through um, right around Easter, the Sunday before Easter, Palm Sunday, we hear about, where this celebration of Jesus entering into this town. But I still remember the first time I actually studied um, the, the, this triumphal entry where Jesus is on this little, small donkey walking into this place. And so I, I want you to, uh, just by a show of hands, how many of you grew up in or around church? You grew up in or around church? All right, look around. Quite a few of you. So you've heard this before. You're like, okay, it's triumphant entry. It's the 4th of July weekend. I can totally zone out. But I'm going to mark this for you this way. The main thing, if you, um, if you take nothing else away, I want you to hear this. What I believe we can see here as we're moving forward towards the cross is that Jesus is the king that all people need, but not the king that most people want. Jesus is the king that all people need, But he's not the king that people want. What it means for him to be the king of your life, to be the king of the world, to be the Messiah of God, and what it means and what it costs to follow him, most people are not down for that. Even his own disciples. And so we we see Jesus picking up with me in Mark chapter 11. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, the to the mountain of, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and they said to them, he said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. So this is literally either a, a younger donkey or a smaller donkey, like from the Greek. It's, it's, this, it's very distinct. It's not like a larger donkey or a, even a mule. It's a small little donkey saying, you're going to go into town, you're going to find this smaller donkey. And I want you to uh, uh, find a colt on which no one has ever set. Not sure how you test that. (laughs) Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. So he's sending his two disciples as heralds, as messengers, to go in. And part of this, I believe, is for the disciples' faith. 
for them to go in obedience to Jesus and to see this take place. Now, you have to understand, in Jerusalem around this time of Passover, they're going into the time of Passover, they, they were used to having many, many pilgrims coming into town. And so they, they were used to, pil- uh, to hospitality towards these pilgrims. And so it's not like Jesus is like, hey, go on over there to uh, Woodland Oaks and grab this dude's uh, <laughs> smart car. And when he's asking why you're hot-wiring his smart car, tell him that your, your master needs it. It's not, he's not stealing, right? He's not telling him, go steal the donkey. He's saying go, and when they, if they ask, give them what I tell you to say. Tell them what I tell you to say. Telling his disciples, I mean, his disciples have been on quite a ride by this point. They have seen him do some wild things. Heal the sick, raise the dead, feed thousands with very little, walk on water, calm a storm. And so by this point, if he tells you, hey, go get this little donkey and bring it out here, you'd assume that, well, we've come this far. We've gone this far with them. We might as well see where it takes us. And so, verse 4, they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing in tying the colt? That's actually better than what we do nowadays. What do we typically do when we hear a car alarm going off in the parking lot? Call 911, go and investigate what's going on? No, what do we do? We keep going, right? You hear this alarm going off, you're not like, man, I should see what's going on. You're like, I wish they would turn that off. I remember when we lived in an apartment complex, there's this alarm that went off every morning like at 2 a.m., and it was one of those loud ones that, I mean, you would have thought it was like a bank vault being broken into. And like clockwork, I don't know if like this cat thought it was funny to pounce on it and set it off, but it was like every morning go off. And ask me how many times I got up to go see like what happened. Zero. All I wanted was for it to, to be quiet, right? There, there's this idea in our culture today, right? If things are happening, we just kind of let it go, unless we have a CHL and are eager. CHL is a concealed handgun license if you're visiting from out of town. In Texas, those are a big deal. Like... I mean, I think some of these ladies here are packing heat in their purse. Just be careful. But they ask him. I mean, obviously, he's com- these guys are coming in. They're, they're untying this young donkey, and they're taking it. These people ask him, like, hey, wh- what are you doing in tying the colt? And they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And so they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. So his disciples were acting as if he were royalty. They were, be, they, they were buying in that, okay, this now's the time. We're going to enter into Passover. He's now going to come into his own. He's really going to come into it. little weird he asked for the donkey. You would think that, you know, a king would roll in on a mighty steed. After the, the movie Shrek came out, I always thought about the donkey in Shrek. With your giggles, I can tell I'm not the only one. And if you haven't yet, you're welcome. But you would think a warrior king would come in on a war horse with his chariots and with his power. But instead, Jesus goes and gets this donkey, and they start beginning to prepare it for a king, putting their clothes on it so that he would not have to touch anything or be defiled. And they put their cloaks on the road. They brought the cloak to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And 
Those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They were excited. They were pumped. They were ready. It was, it was like a pep rally. It was like a parade. It was, it was like the coming of the rodeo that shuts down our roads, which I'm not too thrilled about. You ever got caught on 2978 behind the, uh, the train of people that haven't heard that we have inventions called vehicles? They're in their horses and wagons, going on the trail all the way over to uh, Reliance Stadium area, Stadium area. But they're coming in, and the crowd that's gathering is ecstatic. And it might seem silly that Jesus is riding in on a donkey. But Jesus did so to fulfill a prophecy. He did so because he wanted to be in line and obedient to his father. Jesus did so because he understood the cost of what it meant to become king. Jesus did so not because of the appearances or the approval of man. Jesus did so because that is what God had laid out for Messiah, the king, to do. The humble, suffering servant to be mounted on a donkey and to be carried in to a place declaring something. Now, mind you, had the Roman guards been privy to what he was actually declaring by riding in on a donkey, they would have arrested him right there on the spot. But many of them may not have the understanding of what it means for him to be doing so. But in Zechariah 9.9, one of the prophets in the Old Testament declared this of the coming Messiah. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I'm going to, since y'all actually showed up on 4th of July weekend, I'm going to tell an embarrassing story that I haven't shared, and so we might actually edit this out of the podcast, so you know if you come on holiday weekends, you get a little extra stuff to jab me with throughout the week, all right? I grew up in A-Leaf, southwest Houston, and so I was really into ha- to rap and hip-hop. I was actually a DJ had a set of turntables eventually. It was not good at it. But for a while, I thought I was going to be a rap backup dancer for a rap artist. I don't know why you're laughing. I could do it. And so I had my University of Miami starter jacket. It was actually my dad's. He went to University of Miami. My father had a starter jacket. Never wore it because he looked like a gangster lawyer. And I remember I, I remember I would turn on like some really hardcore rappers like Vanilla Ice, and I would dance along in the mirror and do my moves and all that kind of stuff. And I'd make it about three quarters through a song, and I was out of breath and wore out, dripping sweat. And I was like, maybe I should be like a producer or something like that. But what I would always imagine, really the fun for me, was, was the start of the show. Like, how would the show start? Would, it, would, would I come through the stage or come be lowered in? Would it be a big declaration that I was, I was on the scene, I was ready to go? Even when I started speaking, I started thinking of, like, theme songs to come out to. And so, like, when I was doing high school stuff and everything else, I mean, it wasn't like Final Countdown or anything like that, but I was thinking of different songs that would really, you know, kind of make it, make it really live. And I would, I would always imagine what this declaration would be, what this big pronouncement would be. I always loved this idea of kicking things off the right way. Yet Jesus, when he kicked off his Messiahship, he did so 
not with a bunch of pomp and circumstance, a lot of flash and flair, but he did so in humility. He didn't go spend more than he could afford. He came in humility and humbled himself. I went and looked up some funny pictures I was going to show you, but I decided I don't want to distract too much from worship. But I found one with a biker gang guy, excuse me, a biker club guy on a moped. And he was large. And it was amazing, so I just want you to have that visual. Humiliation, the, the, the humbling nature of our Messiah's entry into Jerusalem was not one, a de- not one of a declaration of weakness, but one of eternal power. Jesus is publicly here fulfilling a prophecy and declaring that he is Messiah, the sent one, the rescuer. The people are crying out, Hosanna. And so I did some research for you. Um, Hosanna is actually a transliterated from the Greek into English. And in the Greek, it's a transliteration actually of a Hebrew phrase. There's not a Greek word for Hosanna. It's actually a Hebrew word that originally means save, please. Please save, save us. But as the word matured, it became salvation. Salvation has come. Now, mind you, they were celebrating the Passover. And so at the Passover, they were remembering God's faithfulness to deliver his oppressed slave people in Egypt many years before. And how God had promised to deliver them. And after many years, he did. He provided a way through Moses to lead them out of slavery into liberation. And while they went into the wilderness for 40 additional years, they eventually were freed and went out. And so they were looking once again for a warrior king to come and liberate them from the the oppression under the Roman Empire. And and they were so excited that this liberator had come that there was this, this praise word, Hosanna. The way John Piper describes it is it's the bubbling over of a heart that sees hope and joy and salvation on the way and can't keep it in. The overwhelmed celebration, Hosanna, salvation has come, our rescue is here. The problem is, is what was said was true. What they were hoping for was false. They were so hopeful for the freedom and liberation from the oppressive Roman government that they made the prophecy into what they wanted it to mean. And it didn't begin with this generation. It was the hope that was declared. This is your world. This is your kingdom. The Messiah will come and set you free. They wanted deliverance And as they cried out, salvation is here, salvation has come, it was an overflow, an overflow of salvation and joy and praise and hope. But the type of salvation that came would be far more costly, yet far more lasting. And so Jesus enters in to this great amount of praise, people putting down these leaves and putting down their cloaks so that he wouldn't have to touch the ground. He was a mighty king coming in on a donkey. 
And he'd entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, this is verse 11. When he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And so he goes in, he goes immediately to the place of God's gathered people, the place where they come to bring their hope and their worship, their tithes, their faithfulness, and their prayers. And we'll see next week as we continue on in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus then goes back into the temple and begins turning over tables. And so the king comes in to go to the place in which he rightly owns. He sees what's going on, but he doesn't immediately act. It says he goes on back to Bethpage. He goes back out that night. He sees, he goes immediately to where he is meant to go. He sees what's going on and the plan forms. And so as we pick up again next week, going into Jesus, cursing the fig tree and turning over the tables, it's not, he's not just reactively having a fit and throwing over tables. He's going specifically on mission in obedience to the Father to right what has been wrong. And that's what he's doing all the way to the cross. He is on a mission to right what has been wronged, and he's doing so all the way to the cross. There's three takeaways I want us to really focus on from this passage here that I want to dig into. I want to go beyond the pep rally of misinformed worship to the reality of what we're learning about Jesus here. Number one, we see this. The humility of Jesus reveals the way of his kingdom. Him riding in on a donkey is declaring not only obedience to the Father, but this humility that surrounds, this is, this is my agenda. Humility is not weakness. Humility is not thinking poorly of yourself or being down on yourself. Humility is a miracle of not thinking of yourself at all. It's having an increased view and value of God in his kingdom, in his purpose, in his way, that it begins to become less concerning about what everyone else thinks and about what everyone else wants. It's an issue of obedience. And that doesn't mean that those of us who are not Jesus don't need believers who are filled with the Spirit of God and following Jesus to speak into our lives. I think if you're in alienation and everyone around you is saying, hey, you probably are in sin or missing God, it doesn't mean that you just say, well, I know God told me, blah, blah, blah. Jesus is God, and so Jesus can work in a unique isolation that is not fully accountable for the rest of us. That doesn't mean there aren't times where God calls us to do something that makes no sense to no one around us. But it's also really sad to see people throw their entire lives away because, quote-unquote, God told them to. The humility of Jesus. Look, we want power. We all do. A lot of anxiety and a lot of depression stems from a sovereignty issue. A lot of pornography addiction And other addictions comes from a sovereignty issue. We feel out of control in different areas of our life, and so we want to take control. And we want to be in control. And and we want to feel a semblance of being alive by being in control. The challenge is, is we need to realize when that's happening, which is true for me and my anxiety, is when I'm feeling those things, let it be an invitation to worship and prayer. But most of us, we allow those things to then be a provocation towards sin. And so we turn away from worship and and prayer, and quite honestly, most of our prayer lives, including mine, are pretty weak. 
if we're honest. I mean, we pray for people when they lose somebody or someone's sick or whatever. We pray. If I see, you know, something about little Emmy, who's a three-year-old in our church who just had her big final treatment for leukemia, is now going into maintenance, I'll, I'll see that and say a prayer. Um, if someone says, will you pray for me? I do pray for you. I'll set a reminder. But overall, when we start realizing that, that our arrogance and pride is a direct block or wall for us having a vibrant prayer life, praying is an act of humility. Praying is saying to God, I can't, but I believe you can. I want, so will you. And so Jesus, making this big pronouncement, I mean, he is publicly declaring that he is the Messiah, but doing so with a posture of humility. But we, in in our area, in our context, myself in my own heart, we want power. We don't want humility because I had a professor one time say, sometimes the path to humility is humiliation. But the way of Jesus is a way of humility. And the way of humility says, I want to I own where I'm wrong before God, before my spouse, before my kids, before my friends, before my coworkers. I want to make right what I can make right. But the reason we don't pursue humility or we put on a false humility, and false humility is like, oh no, I'm so horrible, it all belongs to God. I'm so bad, just a wretch like me. Look at God, right? Uh, that, that kind of false humility, that, that's not the way of Jesus. We don't see Jesus riding in on the donkey going, no, stop it. Stop it. No, seriously, too much. No, don't dirty your cloak. He's walking in obedience and humility with the accurate declaration. But notice, he isn't doing it for the people or their praise. He's doing it to fulfill the prophecy of God. He's doing it in obedience. The humility of Jesus reveals the way of his kingdom. We have a high capacity, high caliber, very intelligent, well-educated church. And maybe I'm the only one here, but I am tempted often to focus and rely on my own abilities. And sometimes it's good to go back to walking with the Jesus on the donkey who is the king of the world was there when it was all made, has all sovereign rights and royalty over it, yet humbles himself in obedience to the Father to fulfill the prophecies. And he walks in humility. Humility isn't something you work on. Humility is a response and a reaction to who God is, to a true Hosanna moment. The humility of Jesus reveals the way of his kingdom. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't want to work I don't want to worship this weak God. I mean, because there's these other views of God that are destroying people in our world now and and conquering, and we need to buckle up and and fight it head on and, and all these things. But the way of Jesus, if you spend time with Jesus, is far more humble and loving and gracious and merciful. Because guess what? We've all been enemies of God. And he would have been right and just to destroy us but instead he destroyed his son. The second thing we see in this passage is the presence and victory of Jesus should evoke an overwhelming response from us. 
Because we know how the story ends, because we know that he rides in on this donkey in fulfillment with the prophecies and that he is uh, arrested and betrayed by someone close to him in fulfillment with the prophecies and in fulfillment with what he told. And because we know he was arrested and put to death and buried and because we know he is raised from the grave, this worship that we're seeing take place isn't because we have a, a, a king that's just liberating us temporarily from this worldly oppression. This worship and praise and orientation of our life is an overwhelming response to the fact that we have an eternal Messiah that liberates us from our addictions and from our brokenness and from our fears and from our anxieties. And we have this overwhelming Messiah who took on sin and the wrath of God and was buried and defeated sin, death, and Satan and was raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again because we have a Savior that died for your abortion, that died for your affair, that died for your bankruptcy, that died for your pride, that died for your success. We have a Messiah who's done that. And as we come behind this humble king, this humble Messiah, and we slow down to consider these things and we're honest about our brokenness and our our neediness, and when we're honest about our successes and our joys, and we begin to realize that all good things are from God, and that the good things that we have are graces and gifts, and the broken things in this world are a result of sin, and that Jesus is the source and Savior of it all. That should be reorienting of our life. That that, that should have this response, this study. I haven't play, paid attention to professional sports in any real serious way since pretty much ever. I traded baseball cards because when I was a kid, I knew they were worth money someday. And so I paid attention to baseball cards. I didn't really care about Jose Canseco and how good he was. I cared about the value of his card. And so my little cousin, Dylan, got drafted by the Cubs. Now I have Google alerts popping up, ringing on my phone. Anytime they, there's a news thing, if I see a gossip thing come up, I'll text him and ask him, and, and I can tell him he can't talk about it because it's awesome, so I keep trying because I'm his big cousin. All of a sudden, I'm a Cubs fan. I told him I was about to buy a Cubs hat, but should I steal? I didn't know if he was going to be transferred or not. He's like, no, I think we're good. I mean, it's 40 bucks. I won't like the Cubs if he's not there anymore. But you see, all of a sudden, that interest changes. The alignment of my money, my time, my focus, my cares, my energy switches. And the problem is, is I think we go so fast in life, we don't take time to be moved by the gospel. That this Jesus was going in in humility, declaring a victory that these people weren't wanting, but they sorely needed. They need that deliverance. And as bad as the Roman Empire treated them, they needed deliverance from their sin. That leads to death eternally. When we slow down to consider the gravity of who Jesus is and what all he has accomplished, it will change the way we see our lives, the way we live them. It will change it. And that's that's what we're praying for here in Montgomery County. That we will actually... Be mindful of those in our area who look different than us, maybe vote different than us, have less, have more. 
and have this compassion and understanding that we are all on the same plane spiritually, that we are all needy of a Savior, that we are all needy of rescue from our sin. Because until we come alignment under the Messiah Jesus, until we are united for that purpose, we're never going to be able to change our community or right the wrongs that need to be righted. We're going to be broken body parts of the kingdom rather than the body of Christ. So coming around the hope of this Messiah, entering into this place, heading towards his impending death, knowing that is what was coming, he did so with humility and amidst praise. And there is a victory, friends, that he has won. And the last thing is this, that Jesus, we see in this passage, Jesus remains faithful to who he is and what he is called to do. He remains faithful. And as a younger congregation, we're aging and some older folks are bearing with us and joining our, our, our numbers and, and, and loving us, but as we mature as a church, as we grow in our faith, as we mature, it's, it's far more tempting to become less faithful to who God is and what he has called us to do. And we see Jesus leading the way, heading towards his death. I don't know about you, I don't like being misunderstood. I remember I played drums for a worship leader one time. I was was just starting my speaking ministry. I wanted to be a speaker, and and I got typecasted as a drummer. But I'm a speaker, but you play really, you play drums pretty well, so I need you to drum right now. But I'm a speaker, will you help me speak? No, you're a drummer. Ah, I got a drum, right? And and it's it's getting stuck in that, his idea for what it was, and I I wanted to fix that. It's like when I misunderstood about things, people are like, oh, you're a sinner in that way. No, 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 I'm a sinner in this way. And that comes out this way, right? I, I, want, I want to be understood. When my wife is mad at me about something, what do I want to do? I want, I want to explain who I am. We see the perfect Jesus solid in his identity so that he continues on, even in the midst of misunderstanding, being faithful to who and what he is called to. Jesus is called to the Father, and he remains obedient to it and faithful to it, even in the midst of ongoing misunderstanding. He's faithful to it as he rides in and people are praising. Yet as they're praising him, salvation has come. He goes into the temple of his people and see that there's, it's like a flea market in there. And he's going to deal with that the next day. But he goes in. So all this praise, Messiah has come. And they go into the temple and there's people being ripped off. Uh, Josephus, I believe, said at one Passover, they, they tracked almost 200,000 um, animals being sold in one year for Passover. I mean, it's quite a market out there. And the reason Jesus was upset, not because they were providing um, people who were traveling a long distance to have um, the animals they needed to sacrifice, it's because they were marking them up. They were price gouging. And so Jesus remaining faithful, not, not concerned about acceptance and approval of other people, but remaining faithful to who he is and what he is called to do. Listen, church, it's easy, it's easy to diminish the value of spending time with the Lord, spending time with the Lord's people, to spending time investing in the kingdom through serving or through giving. It's easy to diminish that. It's easy to do that. We're not gathering here to create a a really nice Christian country club. We're gathering here preparing a space to encounter the living God. 
and hoping that as we encounter living God and other people begin to meet Jesus, that we will then go out and help people in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our schools to encounter the living God, that we start being mindful and care for those who are far from God, not write them off, but engage. We are called to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to make disciples as we go. And for those of you that have covenanted with your local church, we're called to be faithful to Jesus together and help each other to do that. We're called to serve sacrificially and give charitably. We're called to gather consistently in worship and, and serve one another and pray for one another and help one another, but not just in this inward-focused way. We do that so that we are empowered to go out into the world. We do so so that we are engaging with the living God, finding the source of our life and our redemption so that we can then be faithful to God. Jesus, we see, remains faithful to who he is and what he is called to do. So the question I want to leave you with today is where does your understanding of Jesus come from in general? I want you as you're having lunch with your spouse or with your friends or where, do, where does, if I'm honest, where does my understanding of Jesus really come from? If you don't occasionally go back into the Sermon on the Mount and find a part that offends you, I don't know if you're reading it correctly. If you don't ever go because, uh, you know, it's funny, people are like, so are you like the, you know, Luke 15? Are you like the prodigal son or are you like the older brother? I'm like, depends on the day. Or maybe you watch Jesus engage with the Pharisees, the legalists, and, and if that doesn't sometimes offend your flesh, then I wonder if we're reading this right, because if we're reading this and like, I'm in line with that, I'm in line with that, I'm killing that, I'm amazing at that, you're deceived. I'm not saying to go like with a depressed lens to the gospel, like, oh man, I'm horrible, I'm horrible, I'm horrible. No, that's a given. <laughs> Understood. We're not talking transactional anymore of what you need to work better to make God love you. God chose to love you even when you were not lovable. So I'm not saying go to the Bible with a transactional mindset of what do I need to do better? What do I need to work on so I can keep God's love? We go to the word of God to see relationally where we're missing them. These are king that we're orienting our life around. Hosanna, we're, we're saying salvation has come. Then where are we missing the orientation of our life around him? We all are. We all struggle. And so it's not a broken way forward of like, man, I'm so horrible. That's, that's, that's like where we're starting. It's he's great. And he takes his greatness and puts it in us. And he calls us great. And he calls us sons. And he calls us daughters. And he calls us uh, beautifully and wonderfully made, fearfully and wonderfully made. He gives a promise that he who began the good work in you is faithful to see it to completion. But there's times as I'm reading through my Bible plan, reading parts of the Bible, and I'm going through Proverbs, I'm unwise in this area. Man, ouch. Whereas I'm hanging out with Jesus in the Gospels, like, I don't really love anybody well like he does, right? As I go, or my fear of man, Galatians 1.10. Or 1.7, 6.7-ish. Yeah. Are you a pleaser of God or are you a pleaser of man? Ah, I'm a pleaser of man still. My joy can rise or fall depending on how many likes my post has. That's a people pleaser. Right? I, that's why when we go and we spend time in the Word, and, and, and then when we say, I can't say Hosanna towards God today, 
it's too hard, or I don't understand why this is happening. The honesty towards God is what's called confession. You're agreeing with God that it's true. I don't feel like worshiping you today. I don't feel like obeying you today. Exposing that immaturity, taking from the darkness into the light, and allowing God by his spirit to do what he has promised to do to help you, to restore your joy, to lead you to repentance. And that's where we are. I know some of you are weary and tired just from life, and it's true and it's right, and it's, it's true. Some of you are wearied and tired and burned out because you've been relying on your own strength. You've not been communing with the Father. You've not been communing with other believers. You haven't been inviting people in to pray and to help carry the load with you. You haven't been trusting Jesus at his word that he says, come to me, those of you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And let me confess, I haven't always either, recently. And so I'm leading out before you repenting, saying, hey, some of us are burned out because we are relying on our own strength. And that's an invitation from God. That's a grace from God to remind us we need him more. If you're unable to forgive, go back to the cross. Listen, Jesus is the king that all of us need, but he's not the king that most of us want. King Jesus will disorient your life and properly reorient it. He will shake it up. He will break it down. He will prune it. He will stretch it. He does it for God's glory. He does it for your good. And the beautiful thing is, church, is we don't have to do it alone. Christ Community Church exists to glorify God by making followers of Jesus Christ who are growing and multiplying. Part of growing in discipleship is when we mess up, we don't hide it. We confess. When we're burned out, we take some ownership of it. When we're hurting, we ask for help. And then when people drop the ball, because we do, then we forgive, and we fall forward, and we hope in Christ, and we make him our treasure together. That's my hope for you. If you're here this morning, you have never known Jesus as your hope and treasure. You can. Your sin isn't too much. Your heart isn't too far or too hard against God. God has made a way by doing what you could not do through his son, Jesus. Simply confess, agree with God your sin, ask Jesus to rescue you. He is faithful and will do so. Let's pray.